would never backtrack. I put this shit on my shoulders like a backpack. Savage, 21, yeah, blackjack. Hit the powder with the water, that's a flapjack. Got caught with the work and snitch, you a pack rat. I do this shit for the chips, this a rap snack. I be preaching through these bars, I'm on a higher mission. You would think I wrote these verses out in hieroglyphics. You heard I got it popping, yeah, I probably did. Been kicking shit like this since Karate Kid. Was 18 with a foreign like Fabi. Japanese denim, shout out to Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> I always got picked, but I didn't play. I always knew the top was my end state. How can a stranger come and tell me what my friends say? How can he without seeing be a sensei? Off the muscle, I keep the heat, no being gay. Niggas weak in the middle, it ain't Wednesday. All this money talk, but we seeing different. We still waiting on you to ball like Ben Simmons. Off the block running shit, I feel like trail chemists. My homie like 6'5", but he sell midget. Spinners in the car, we don't sell fidgets. With some niggas throwing signs that never hear pickets. Climb to the top of the mountain to watch the sun rise. You was doing all that talking, now your tongue tied. Exotic views of the beach from the mountainside. Hustling to watch the amount in my accounts rise. Cause really we came from zero And slapping niggas in the airport like Grove Hero I come from the slums of Mississippi like a mosquito We're hating to get your ass rolled up like a mosquito Fellas What up man? <clears throat> what it do? We're good What's poppin' man? What's poppin' bro? What up my bro? Man, running, I'm running <laughs> right now, trying to trying to get in here. Camera went work right. I had my computer with me, so I had it disconnected from everything. So I'm trying to trying to get plugged in, man. Yeah, yeah. to get get back in the groove real quick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Man, I'm tired, <laughs> sleepy. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> Yeah, sleepy man. So you know, got the got the little man. So now we're we're a household of four. So it's it's been a it's been a, a blessed week. I say yeah. that. Yeah, I was gonna say before we get into the show, man, we got to send a big congratulations to you and your wife on the new edition, man. So congratulations to y'all. Appreciate uh, you know, and all the blessings and, and naps that you need throughout the day. I, uh, I, I swear, I just woke up for like an hour and a half ago. <laughs> <laughs> I think I told you this before, but I'm, I'm going to say it again. Like, as my granddaddy say, now you got to buy four pair of shoes. You can't wear but one. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and, and they all smiled at my feet, so I can't slide my foot in. <laughs> yep. Hey, man, but I appreciate y'all, man. Um, I think we uh, we about ready to get rolling, folks, tonight. So, yeah, man. Um, so look, we're gonna bring on Akil. I hope I'm saying his name right. I think I said it right three or four times before. Akil Parker. Um, we're gonna do things a little different tonight. So we're not gonna introduce him. We're gonna allow him to introduce himself. But uh at this time, fellas, we want to um let me get my stuff right over here first. All right, there we go. We want to bring on Akil Parker. What's up, man? meet y'all yeah 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 you too man good to have you on congratulations on your new edition thank you man i appreciate it i, I got one gray hair right here i cut it off a little while ago so i'm, I'm sure it's more it's more to come where it came from yeah yeah yeah, yeah definitely, definitely, definitely appreciate it yeah yeah so um you know we know um that you've been 
uh, watching, following uh, Sticks and Stones. Uh, we appreciate it. Appreciate the support. And, uh, and likewise, it's going the other way now because you're doing something very unique um, that people uh, from our community don't realize, don't understand, don't know unless they're in the thickest of it. So at this time, we're going to allow you to introduce yourself, and then we're going to jump into uh, your specialty. Okay. Well, um, as you said, my name is Akil Parker. I'm based in Philadelphia, but I, well, not not Mississippi. It was y'all down in Mississippi. Oh. A lot of people don't. A lot of people don't know there's another Philadelphia outside of Pennsylvania. People don't know that, and there might be more. Might be two or three or four. But um, yeah. So I'm based in Philly, PA. I uh, grew up in Baltimore, Baltimore, Maryland, and um, I'm a math teacher, I'm a math professor, a mathematician, and I'm a, a member of the community, the black community, and I, I'm trying to do my part to improve the relationship that the black community has with mathematics. So we can change the relationship from one where we essentially kind of try to avoid math or we kind of view math as a bully that, you know, we kind of like, like I said, we want to avoid and we change the relationship into math as actually your protector. You know, the person that you call when you feel like you're being bullied or you feel like you might need some support or something. Um, but of course, that requires that we have to be taught math in a certain way, um, in a way that we can understand it, in a way that it makes sense way that it seems relevant and you know seems like something that is helpful and not just the way it's often been offered to us which is something that's like a necessary evil it's like a class we got to take every year and you know it seems very difficult and you know and then you kind of you start to feel like you know you need it you should have been born with a math gene in order to be able to be able to excel at it um i like to you know dispel that type of thinking um i'm also a father a father of three and, you know, my children inspire me because a lot of the things that, you know, I've taught them or and I, and I am currently teaching them, I'm trying to share with the community. So, you know, in fact, a lot of the a lot of the content that's in the book that I recently published in June, how to use how to use all this math volume one really just comes from just kind of just impromptu types of like math lessons that I kind of came up with to teach my son when he was younger or to, you know, teach my daughter certain math concepts and that I will be working on with my, my my youngest son, who's only four years old. So, you know, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that, you know, uh, later on in the episode. But um, so, yeah, that's the, you know, I'm, I'm out here trying to, you know, improve the relationship that we have as a community with mathematics. I'm really trying to shift the culture. I'm trying to change the narrative of the culture. And, you know, because my, my ultimate goal is, well, I got a, a couple of ultimate goals to, to teach math to the entire black community, right? And also to to alter our kind of cultural norms in a, in, a, in a sense where when you think of black people, you think of excellence in mathematics, you know, and I know that's not the, that's not the prevailing narrative. That's not what people, you know, naturally think of, you know, based on like, you know, media, media exposure and a lot of our experiences, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm working toward, you know, cause I think that, you know, we're definitely intelligent enough. We just have to be taught properly. Cool. Yeah, so, I think that's uh, an interesting, uh, an interesting story and narrative, and also important that you are doing your part and contributing to the community, uh, you know, teaching and giving back in a sense, or I, I won't even say in a sense, but just giving back through uh, a gift or talent, uh, expertise that you develop. So salute to you for that. Yeah, likewise, man. Yeah. <clears throat> 
So look, so uh, that, that was my first question was how important is uh, is math to the black community and to the black student. So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to tie it in with another question I had. So with math changing the way that it is or being taught the way that it is, how important are the uh, the methods that you're speaking of to the black community? Well, to, the, to the youth. Yeah, I think they become even more important um, than they ever have been because, you know, because now it's, you know, and now we're, we're in a, like a, it's like a shift going on um, in terms in, 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 in the environment, you know, in, in the world where, you know, like you mentioned, math is being taught, you know, in different ways. And a lot of parents feel kind of at a loss and unable to help their children with the homework because, you know, the way the elementary school math homework may be coming home, it may not be the method that we were taught it 30 years ago or 40 years ago. So now it's even more incumbent on parents to even kind of get back into the mix and kind of re-educate themselves on like how to do some of these types of problems, like how to do multiplication in different ways, how to do division in different ways, how to do addition and subtraction. And initially I wasn't really a big fan of Common Core, but I became a fan because I started teaching on a college level at Cheney University, uh, HBCU in, in Pennsylvania. And I was teaching them, I started out teaching a math methods course about five years ago. And I'm teaching education majors that plan to be elementary school teachers. I'm teaching them how to teach math. So I had to learn these new methods that I also, you know, was pushing back on, like, just like a lot of people. But when I really dug into them, I realized that they actually make a lot of sense. And what they do is they show us why the methods that we learned or the algorithms that we learned years ago, why they actually work. When I was young, I was real good at like, I was good at math general. I was really good at math actually in general. I was one of the one of the kids that always got good grades. Like that was kind of my thing, right? I played sports too, so I wasn't like a whole nerd, but you know, but but you know, I was I was good, I was good in school. School was my thing. And um, but I was good at like, you know, give me the problem, give me the steps, I'll memorize the steps, and I'll get to the answer. And that's what I would do. I was good at memorizing algorithms and just getting to the answer. But I couldn't tell you why it worked. I couldn't tell you why it made sense. I couldn't tell you like what's the best best method, you know, based on you know the different methods that that might have been available. Um, in a lot in a lot of ways, I looked at math the same way I approach math. I should say, in the same way that I would that I would approach video games. You know, in video games, you know, you try to just figure out the patterns. You know, where's the where's the boss going to jump out at? You know, if I'm playing like Shinobi or something, and you know, I got to they throwing stars or they shooting, and I I, I got to figure out okay, I got to duck right here. And then the bullet's gonna go by. Then I just got enough time to jump up and then come over and kill him with the sword or whatever I got to do. All you do is like you learn the pattern. Once you learn the pattern, then you can win. So math was the same way. You just learn the pattern. I could recognize problems, and I say, okay, when the problem look like this, then I'm gonna just do this, do it this way. Follow these two steps or these four steps. When the problem look this way, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna follow these steps and do it like that. But I really could. I was at a loss. I didn't really realize it though. But I was at a loss because I really couldn't tell you why it worked. So now, a lot of the math, in, the, in terms of the methods that are being used now, they're challenging the children to really understand, you know, why it works. Now, it's, it's, it's difficult to teach it that way, though, because as an instructor, you got to really be sharp. And you got to be, you know, on your own P's and Q's. And you got to really understand it. And then you got to really understand how to break it down. And like a lot of the, the curriculum that's out now, it's, it's more, it's a lot, it seems a lot more complex than what it was in the past. So it's going to require that teachers actually do some like serious study, you know, and some and some deep study and really, really learn it for themselves. 
And that can be a challenge because you got a lot of teachers that, you know, they want to teach, they want to provide, you know, a positive service in the community and they want to help young people. But a lot of them, they grew up scared of math too. So, and a lot of them chose to become elementary school teachers because they said, well, I want to teach, but I just want to teach the young kids because that's like, you know, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. That's like the fundamentals, the basic stuff. But the problem with that is if you don't have an understanding of the higher level math, even when you're trying to teach somebody fundamental, it's going to affect your teaching. Your teaching is still going to be limited. Yeah. Um, Cause it's kind of like, you know, with a child, like, you know, when you when your newborn baby's going to start crawling, you're going to help them crawl, but you're not, you're not helping them crawl with the expectation that that's all they're going to do. Mm. Yeah. Expectation. Right. One day they're going to be walking. One day they're going to be jogging. They're going to be running, you know, all types of things, climbing up stuff, climbing, you know, whatever, you know, so you 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 help them to crawl with that long-term mentality. So like the, the math teacher that doesn't have a, a more advanced understanding of math, they're kind of limited in terms of like the amount of help that they can provide, you know? Um, and it, you know, it applies to me too, you know? Um, I wasn't originally a, a math major or education major in school. The highest math course I took in college was calculus one. I was a finance major. And that's all, that's as far as we had to go in terms of math courses so there's a lot of higher level math like that I would like to get into and I would like to study because I know all it's going to do is just help me with the with the earlier math. Because when I'm, you know, sometimes, you know, I know some calculus concepts and I'll be thinking like sometimes like, you know what, when I'm teaching a six year old arithmetic, basic arithmetic, it's an overlap. It's a direct connection to stuff that's going on in calculus. So when I'm having that conversation in a tutoring session or even when I'm you know teaching a, a group and they six year olds or seven year olds. I'm going to mention that. I'm going to be like, yo, when you get the calculus, you're going to have to do this too. It's really the same exact thing. And that's like a way to like make them feel more comfortable with the higher level math. Um, Cause a lot of times, you know, they don't have, they don't have adults having those types of conversations with them. They just be like, you know, there's kind of, kind of, there's like a fear. There's like a, a fear that's instilled in us about like, even the word calculus, like makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Like <laughs> math, like, like yeah. it, it's like the marketing. It's like, it's like how it is. Like some things, are marketed to us to make us feel safe and feel, you know, feel all warm inside. And some things are marketed to us to make us feel fearful and, and be scared. And I don't even, that's, I, I'm sure that there's, there's nothing coincidental or accidental about that either, you know? Yeah. So prior to, I know you said you was a finance major, uh, undergrad. So what, actually sparked your interest in, in mathematics and history and also how did that passion develop over time? Like when did you know you wanted to become an educator? Yeah. Well, I mean, I kind of got, you know, I mean, it's kind of like, like Lerone Bennett wrote a book about Abraham Lincoln, you know, kind of dispelling a lot of myths about him being the great emancipator and all that. <laughs> um, and he entitled it forced into glory. So sometimes I think of myself, I was forced into glory because I didn't plan to become a teacher like for real for real, I had a baby on the way and I took my I had took my finance degree graduated from Morgan uh, December 2003 then I started working for the FDIC or the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation that January that wasn't a good fit for me um, I had like negative evaluations because I really didn't have the accounting background for it so I didn't know what I was doing and they also weren't training me you know really at all um, I was going on the bank exams and kind of just trying to look like I was doing work. <laughs> I was doing the best that I could, but I didn't know what I was doing. So they was really, they was about to fire me. So by the end of the year, they was about to fire me. 
And then the supervisor kicked it to me like, you know, he was a brother, so he kicked it to me. I guess he was trying to look out for me. And this is back in two, like 2004. And he's like, look, you know, we, we can't keep you. We got to let you go based on your evaluations. But um, if you resign, then that way you won't have a termination on your record. So, you know, in the case you ever want to get government, work for the federal government again, it'll look better for you. You know what I'm saying? Because you don't have a termination. I said, all right, I'll do that. So I did that. And then I kind of was just like, you know, I was debating whether I should go to graduate school or like what type of work I should do. And then, you know, my father's been an educator for, you know, a long time. He started teaching when I was like two years old or three years old. Um, he's still a teacher right now to this day. Um, been in the game like 39 years, I think. Um, so he kind of recommended to me, like, why don't you, you know, try out teaching, try education. And especially like you have a good, math, strong math background. He told me that, you know, a black man that can teach math, you can kind of write your own ticket. So I said, for real? I said, all right, I'm going to try it out. So I started out substitute teaching. And, and again, all of this was like, like the pressure was on because like, you know, I had, I had a baby on the way, you know, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? So I was like, <laughs> and I, you know, I was, I was raised a certain way. Whereas, you know, um, even though my child's mother, she had her degree, she was actually a classroom teacher already, but I was like, I'm not going to sit back here and just like have her like provide for my child. Not, we're not doing that. Right. So I was like, I need, I need a job. I got to make sure I got a job and like a, you know what you know a career i gotta get get onto another career path um so yeah so i started doing substitute teaching and then from there that led to full-time teaching and you know I, I still at that point up to that point i didn't really have a love for math i appreciated math and math was like kind of like a status thing because people kind of have a certain regard for you especially like in the black community if you're like a black person that's good at math it's kind of like people give you a certain level of respect for that you know so I kind of like appreciated that. That was good for my ego, right? But then I realized like, you know, I could actually teach other people so that other people could be good at it too. And even then, like early in my career, I didn't really see the value in math except for just to get a job. But it's a lot more than that because, you know, it shouldn't be just about getting a job working for the white man, you know, because at any moment, like, you know, he could take your job away, <laughs> right? Um, so it was, you know, and then in terms of history, I've always had an interest interest in history I think I get a lot of that from, um, well, both my parents, actually, because, you know, my parents, you know, they were kind of in the same community, you know, in the early 1980s with, like, people like John Henry Clark, like, in New York, and, um, you know, Marimba Ani, people of that nature. I was involved in, like, an after-school program when I was really young that those people, you know, administered and whatnot. Um, so I always had, like, an interest in, like, African history and African-American history. And, you know, as when I as I became when I became a teacher, just the natural conversations I would have in the classroom, you know, my students would always kind of joke with me and say, you know, Mr. Parker, you should have been an African-American history teacher. And, you know, I would kind of laugh it off and not think too much of it. But then I started thinking more seriously about it. And as time went on in my math classes, I said, well, why don't I let me become more intentional. So I would try to incorporate like history into like my classwork assignments, my quizzes, my tests. I would make up problem math problems. That dealt with like you know maybe somebody that's on this hoodie right now maybe something about harriet tubman asada shakur fanny Lou hamer you know what i'm saying like ida b wells you know people like that and then the students would be taking the tests and the ex exams and whatnot they would notice it they look up you know you know whatever i might take something from like you know contemporary hip-hop or something like put an artist or something like in a math problem just to like make it culturally relevant you know and then they would like they would notice that so that's kind of that's kind of my story, like, and then, but 
the love for math, I think you asked about that too. The love for yeah. math from probably like within the last five or six years, when I started my company, all this math, when I started doing tutoring, then I had more opportunity to like work one-on-one -on -one with more students and, you know, gain a better understanding of different learning styles, different like learning styles. Cause a lot of teachers, what we do is we have our own learning style that we had when we were students. So that learning style kind of matures into a teaching style. And then we have that one teaching style, but that's one of the things that separates a good teacher or I guess an average teacher from a good or better teacher is that you have to have multiple styles. You have to have multiple teaching styles to match up with different learning styles. Because a lot of people's learning styles won't match with your natural teaching style. So then you got to figure out other ways to, you know, convey information and get people to understand and like and be able to make it make sense. I always I always say this. I kind of think of it like like a good rapper can like switch his flow up based upon the topic, based upon what type of beat it is, based upon who he's who he's on the track with. Because like if I'm a New York rapper. And I go down south and I'm on a I'm on a track with somebody from Atlanta or somebody from Miami or something, and it's a different type of vibe, you know, whatever. I might switch up a little bit because I have versatility, right? Because I'm talented. Like I think teachers have to be able to do the same thing, but a lot of teachers, they just one way, like <laughs> they just give it to you one way. And it's like you might have a class with like 30 students in there, and your teaching style might only really be suitable or the most suitable for like five of them. So then it's like the other 25 students just like ass out of luck. <laughs> like they just got yeah. it. That's where they can. Um, but a lot of times, like developing those different teaching styles comes with experience. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, early in the game, first year in, second year, third year teachers, you know, they don't really have that yet. And then a lot of them don't stay in the, like nowadays, a lot of people don't stay in the teaching game for a long, long enough time to really be, get good at it. You know, they kind of, they get burnt out. And then they go like switch careers and go somewhere else. So they never even get them to give themselves a chance to really become a great teacher. You know, they kind of, you know, they tapped out too soon. Yeah. But, yeah. but yeah, so my love, my love came like within the last five or six years, um, learning the concepts behind a lot of the math that I would be able to do when I was younger, but learning the concepts and then being able to realize that, Oh, that's why that makes sense. Oh, that's why that works. And then it's like math starts to, cause I, cause it's kind of like, I developed a more intimate understanding of it. You yeah. Know? It's kind of like, 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 like a woman that you meet and you kind of dealing with her, but y'all kind of casual. And then you don't really know her like that. You like her, but you might call her only at certain times for certain reasons. <laughs> and <laughs> it kind of got like a superficial relationship with her. But then it's like, you might end up getting to know, when you start to get to know her a little bit, then you're like, you know what? You, you kind of are a little bit. You know, you're all right a little bit. Then you really develop, develop some feelings for it. And then you're like, okay, I actually like you, like you. You know what I'm saying? You actually, you know, you, it's, you know, still waters run deep. Like it's, you know, so then, then you start to love her. Then you like start, then you catch feelings, you know, so it's not just a casual thing no more. You know, that's kind of how it was with math. Like, you know, with math, I had like a casual relationship with math throughout most of my life. But now like the love is there. Cause I really, I really understand it like conceptually. And then I see like, you know, why the stuff works and like why it makes sense and like how it's connected. And like nowadays I'd be like, just looking at like connections to like just everyday life. And I just be seeing stuff all around me. And my, one of my big things now is like, you know, listening to like Amos Wilson lectures or Malcolm X lectures and listening to the stuff that they're talking about 
and then thinking about like how some of that stuff directly relates to like different concepts in geometry or different concepts in algebra or algebra two. And then I, I take that stuff and then I incorporate it into my, my teaching. Cause then it's like, I get the opportunity to like talk history while I'm talking math. Like Malcolm X might, might like had a lecture where one time he was talking about um, the cycle of poverty, right? He's talking about the cycle of poverty. And he talked about how you start out in a poor neighborhood and then because you live in a poor neighborhood, you end up going to a poor school because they got the poorest, poor schools and the poor communities with the low quality teachers. But you get a poor education. So then when you grow up, you get a low paying job, which brings you right back. Well, not brings you back, but it causes you to maintain, be stuck in the poor neighborhood. So 30, 20 years later, you're still in the poor neighborhood. And that's the cycle of poverty. So I'm listening to that. And I'm like, he's talking about a cycle. While he's talking about a cycle, he's talking about a circle. So I'm thinking like, oh, that's something I could talk about in the geometry class. Cool. So when it's time to talk about circles, finding the circumference of a circle, finding the area of a circle, um, finding, you know, doing different operations, all the different theorems and everything in geometry, anything about circles, we could bring we could bring the ancestor Malcolm X into the conversation. Right. While yeah. we talking about circles. So it's like, yeah, we're talking about circles. But we also talking about Malcolm X. And I think what that could do is it could make it more relevant because then it's like you get to do some storytelling in the math class. But a lot of math classes, it's no storytelling. But that's part of the reason why it seems boring. And it seems it seems irrelevant because it's just numbers, X's, Y's, formulas, equations. That's it. Like these are the steps. Do this. Get the answer. Go into the next question. Get the answer. Go into the next question. So I'm trying to like switch it up, like, you know, because I'll go I'll go into class and like I had this hoodie on. And I'm trying to figure out ways instead of just talking to my students about these people or having them look in my hoodie and be like, who's that? Who's that? You know, because a lot of them don't know, you know, because nobody told them. Like, you know, they don't know about these people. Um, I'm trying to figure out ways to say, all right, well, like while I'm going through the steps of this process of how to do these problems, like the words of these people and the experiences of these people can like directly relate to it. You know, and it's and it's a term for that. You know that I that I trademarked actually called called histematics. You know, called histematics. Like so, connecting the history to the math in a way that like is real and makes sense. Hold, know, your, hold your horse. Hold your horse. So we we go. We, we go talk into that. <laughs> uh, I was uh, on a roll. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You was doing great, man. <laughs> um, you you mentioned something about poverty, so I feel like this is a good time to uh, ask my question. Um, I was browsing your timeline and saw that um, two years ago, 2021, around this time, you had a chance to visit our state of uh, Mississippi. Yeah. And you were on a video uh, with Patrick uh, Labumba, who we recently had on. And uh, I just wanted to see, um, did you have any other connections or affiliations with anybody else in Mississippi besides Pat? We know you know Frederick and Simone. And then also... Um, just kind of share some of your key takeaways um, from you touring uh, the Mississippi Delta. Um, I mean, it was it was a great experience. I mean, you know, because like it's a place that I I've studied you know, a lot. Because like I I spent a lot of time like the last ten years like studying a lot about Kwame Torre, and you know I studied him so much and be you know developed such an appreciation for him and his work that you know my youngest son is named Kwame. So you know my youngest son is named after him. Um, similar to Asada Shakur, like I was studying her at one point. My daughter's name is named after her. My daughter's name is Asada, you know. 
So, um, but just like him, him getting his start in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, you know, and the work that they was doing in Mississippi, you know, coming down to try to like organize the people, um, you know, and just thinking about, and then I, I, I often, re recent, more recently, I think about how growing up, I mean, I grew up in Baltimore. Baltimore technically is a Southern city because it's in Maryland, but it's probably like the, it's the northernmost you can go and still be in the South. So it has like a kind of like a Northern mentality in many ways. Um, they always, we were always kind of conditioned to like not want to be in the South or like kind of stay away from places like Mississippi and Alabama. Um, like part of, partly because of the history, but, you know, I think about, you know, the, the importance and like, you know, I've been studying like, you know, the Republic of New Africa recently, you know, I, I had heard of the Republic of New Africa, but I didn't really know a whole lot about it, you know, but I've really been like studying like a lot of the stuff that like Imari Obadeli was talking about and like the nuts and bolts of it and whatnot. And like the ideas they had for like, you know, an independent nation and whatnot. And it's all real, it's all very fascinating. And then, you know, thinking about people like learning about Fannie Lou Hamer and like Ida B. Wells and all the people that like came out of Mississippi and came through Mississippi and, you know, just like the importance of that, of this area, you know, and, and what black people have been able to do in that area. I just really like just appreciate it a lot and appreciate going down there um, and being down there. And I just came back from down there because we, we had this, this summit um, in Jackson, you know, like two weeks ago and I was down, I presented, talked about um, histematics, you know, while I was, while I was there. And, um, yeah, just uh, and just like you know, being being connected to, to to the past, being connected to the history, you know, in that in a, in a sense, um, I just really appreciate it. And like in that video, that was my first time ever being you know on a, on a cotton field, because again, there was something that I learned about, learned about chattel slavery, learned about cotton, you know, our ancestors picking cotton, you know, cotton plantations and all of that. But like to be out there, like it was like it was emotional. You know, and then I was thinking about it, I just like just seeing it with my own eyes, like all that cotton that was out there. I start thinking of like, you know, because like, like I say, like I always think about math in terms of everything, I, everything I witnessed. So I, I start thinking about the square footage and the, or the acreage or like how much cotton is there and how much how much, you know, wealth are people generated um, for these white folks that that owned the cotton plantations that own owned the land and everything. Um, I really started thinking about a lot of that and, and, you know, and I, and I think that, you know, it's, so that's why that's another reason that I'm motivated to teach our people math is because when we talk about oppression when we talk about, you know, basically like theft is what it really is. Like, you know, stealing labor and whatnot and, and even slavery. Like, I think we got to know the math so we can like become very specific in terms of like understanding our experience or the experience of our ancestors. Cause it's one thing to say like, yeah, we was enslaved and that was that was fucked up, right? I can curse on here, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You good? I figured I could. That's why. Yeah, um, <laughs> this is Stone's part of sticks, so you good. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's it's better to be able to say it's more more efficient to be able to say, okay, yeah, they, we were enslaved, and like you know, this is how much we generated on a daily basis, and then this percentage of it was taken and used for this, and then you know, and then there was a trend, and then certain certain times you know, we would increase production or production would decrease or, you know, and then even with thinking about like sharecropping, like sharecropping is wild because it's like, 
Like you can only do like, and this is something I noticed. And this is another thing that like motivates me about the teaching of math, because a lot of times today there's an emphasis on, on um, English language literacy, but a lot of times it's not a conversation around mathematical literacy because with the issue of sharecropping, it's like, yeah, I'm sure like a lot of, a lot of our ancestors didn't understand, didn't know how to read the English language. So they were, they were um, exploited because of that, but I'm sure they also didn't know how to do calculations. Cause it's like, that's why some white man can come to you and tell you like, no, nah, you owe this and this is this much. And like, look at this. And, you know, I mean, who's to say if you did understand it, you know, he was going to be do good business anyway, but still, you know what I mean? Like not right. even in how to do the calculations. He's trying to tell you, no, you owe me this much money, but you can't do the mathematics. You can't do the multiplication or the algebra that's required to be able to know like, no, nah, like you, you trying to, you, you, you stealing right now. Like you're being dishonest right now. You don't even know. So, and a lot of our people like to this day, you know, I say all, all the time to like my students, I'd be like, man, like as future teachers, your job is so critical because your job is really to develop like a defense mechanism in your students. Because if you don't, there'll be like a lot of people out here, they get robbed every day without a gun and with a smile and a handshake. Because like, I could lie to you and tell you that, you know, it's this much and it's really not this much. You know, we was talking about fractions the other day. And I'm like, you know, somebody would play around. Like, you, you know, you encounter a person, a person that's a scammer. They might encounter a person that doesn't understand fractions and they can spot it. They can spot you, you know, kind of smell you coming. You know what I mean? And they'd be like, oh, well, you know, three fourths is cheaper than nine twelfths. <laughs> so I'm going to cut this up into, nine, into 12 slices. And, you know, each of these pieces is more than if it was in four slices and you buy three. And you're not knowing that those are equivalent fractions. So you're not knowing that. And somebody just tell you something, tell you, oh, no, nah, these are more than this. And you can't even stand up and be like, well, wait, hold up. What you mean it's more? How's it more? They're equivalent fractions. It's the same amount, you know? So people could play games with you. So I'm telling my students, like, you got to protect these kids. Because, you know, you got you to gotta develop that mentality in them where they can, like, really go out here in the world and be able to navigate the world a certain way and not be victimized. You know, because it's like it's a lot of wolves out here. You know, people, you know, you if you don't know math, you're gonna be prey, you're gonna be like food. Like people see you coming, like, and that's just it's unfortunate, but that's the that's the type of, of world we live in right now. So yeah, you, it's, uh it's about protecting I'm my bad. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I was done. I was done. Cool. I was gonna say, can you elaborate or on your theory uh, of the transitive property? Oh, the transitive property. Um, yeah. I think that's some. Pa uh, Brother Patrick just made a comment about that, didn't he? Yeah, we'll put it back up there. Was he talking about uh, no, something? He, he uh, said quantitative value. Oh, the quantitative, quantitative value. value. Uh, wealth gaps were originally created between black and white people. Yeah, so what happens is, so, you know, there's a, you know, if you, again, like I was mentioning earlier, if you, quanti if you quantify the amount of wealth that's generated, off of slavery, off of the, the crop production, the, the rice, the cotton, the sugar, the tobacco, um, everything off just the, the, the different things that, you know, our ancestors were creating and, and, and then supplying, you know, to, to different communities. Um, and then only certain people were profiting and other people weren't. And then, then you have like compound interest you know, a compound, compound value, again, another math concept. So when people say, well, you know, I wasn't there, 
I don't got nothing to do with that. Like some Europeans might say that, but they're dismissing the concept of comp of compound growth, right? And compound value. So those millions and millions of dollars from 200 years ago are still growing because they're still being invested. So somehow you're still benefiting from that, right? So it's almost, it's like some, a similar thing. So when people say things like, you know, like black people might say, well, slavery is in the past. Why are you talking about this? This don't affect me. And like somebody like Amos Wilson might've said, well, hold up for a minute. What language are you speaking? <laughs> you speaking English right now. That wasn't your language. Like what foods are you eating? What are your customs? Like what type of religions are you practicing? Like all these types of things are like in many ways vestiges of, of slavery, but vestiges of the fact that you were taken from your homeland and you were put into a different, you know, a different system of living. So these are all the things that like, you know, a lot of people don't want to think about and don't think about, but they're mathematical principles that can prove that they are very relevant. You know, that's like, I think that's the answer to his question. But you said, you mentioned transitive property. I got another yeah. example for that. Yeah. Into that. So there was something that I talked about at the Building Power Summit um, in Jackson. And one of the, and basically in my presentation, what I was, what I was trying to, I was trying to make the point that our children definitely need adults too, but definitely our children need political education. Like this is one of the things that the Black Panther Party like focused on: political education, political education. So what I what I believe is that, in terms of learning mathematics, a lot of the principles of mathematics are a direct overlap with a lot of the principles of political science, and political education is mainly political science. So if we teach our children math in a serious way then they're going to be receiving political education because a lot of the, a lot of the things that go on in the world, they will start to recognize them as contradictory. And I also believe that that's why we're kind of, we are conditioned to fear math and to want to stay away from math because the powers that be know this, they know that math is really the key to, for, for people to be able to see what's really going on around them and how we're being exploited. So one of the issues is like, you know, thinking about integration. And again, Kwame Torrey, it was a quote that he, he had back in the 60s during, a, during a, I think, a debate with Bayard Rustin. And he was talking about how, Kwame Torrey is talking about how um, integration was really just a subterfuge for the maintenance of white supremacy. So basically integration was like, in many ways was like a scheme just so it's like, yeah, we got to maintain control, but let's do this, let's push this integration plan where, like I heard an elder on the radio, say here in Philly, like 10 years ago, you know, integration meant the white man gets to keep hundred percent of his money. And now he can get 90% of our money. Cause now it's like, you know, cause now like, Oh, we can, we can go shop with them now. And that's seen as a status symbol, you know, um, all of a sudden the black, the black owned businesses aren't good enough no more. Right. Or the black owned businesses get, get bullied and through policy or through terror, terrorism, yeah. they get down, you know, um, so that's integration. So fast forward 2023, I'm thinking about, you know, this, this kind of buzzword that's going around now, diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI. It's really the same thing as integration. It's just the next, it's another iteration of like the same principles of integration. Like let's, let's get representatives. It's like, it's a way for you to like protect what you have. It's a way for like the white community to protect what they have. Because, you know, they recognize, like, if we 
if we oppress these people too much, then they might really rise up. So we got to bring some people in. You know, we got to incorporate them or try to integrate them in, right? And then put these representatives up, you know, in, in place to give the appearance that things are changing and that things are better. And also what it does is a lot of that manpower, a lot of that intellect, a lot of those resources, once we recruit you in to work for us, now you won't be able to build anything for yourself. So it really is like, it serves a lot of purposes. So what I'm saying is like the transitive property, you know, if integration is equivalent to DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion, and if integration was a subterfuge for the maintenance of white supremacy, then we can, we can conclude that DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives are also a subterfuge for the maintenance of white supremacy. And that's a math concept. That's transitive property. Every algebra one class in the beginning of the school year, I guarantee you with some ninth graders all over the country, probably like earlier this month, earlier in September, maybe late August, first chapter, chapter one, section one, they're talking about a lot of the fundamental pop properties of algebra, transitive property, commutative property, associative property, all these properties. Early in my career, I knew what they meant. I knew how to like work, use them on paper, but I didn't really see the utility in them. I didn't see the value in it. I didn't know that, wow, I could take the transitive property and use that to explain a social condition and a social reality that's affecting us in our community, you know? So that's my, that's my little, um, one of, one of the examples of like how the transitive property is used. But so the, the thing is, is like, and this is why I'm so passionate about teaching all people math. Cause it's like, if you see the math concept, it'll, it'll, it'll influence the way you think. It's almost like there's this term I learned called neuroplasticity. So neuroplasticity means it's like how um, technology can kind of reshape our brain and reshape the way we, way, the way we consume information. So I think mathematics has that power of neuroplasticity. So it's like if you're influenced a lot by math and you do a lot of math problems and you, you, you utilize and put into practice a lot of math principles, you, it's not going to be limited to just what you do in the classroom. Now it's like, you know, everywhere you go, you out in the street, you out on the block, you're looking at things a certain way. Like, you know, like, like me, like I'm so used to like solving equations. I need, I need, I need stuff to be balanced. I need the left side to equal the right side. And a lot of us do this too. A lot of people that even though, even the people that claim they bad at math, let somebody try to try to get over on you. One of the first things you're going to say is no, nah, something ain't up. <laughs> so you're doing algebra. You just don't realize it. You're doing algebra. You know what I'm saying? Or like I, like I told my students in Cheney the other day, I said, listen, anytime you tell somebody what or you, you kind of respond to somebody that's like making a big fuss about something and you want them to chill and you say, what difference does it make? That's a mathematical statement because the difference is this is the result in a subtraction problem. So what we so what you're implying is that there's no difference or there's a difference of zero. So you're saying, OK, if we do this thing and then we do this other thing, they have the same value. So if you subtracted one from the other, you're going to get a result of zero. So that means there's no difference. So if somebody say it don't make no difference, they're doing math. Like there's so much math in the English language. And then, you know, the, the way we use, utilize the English language, we're doing math all the time. Like all this math. <laughs> all this math, yeah. Like double negatives. Like if somebody say, um, I don't know, uh, I'm trying to think a good example. Like anytime there's like a double negative, like in the English language, 
um, like if somebody say it, it is not like writing in a, in a technical way, you know, trying to, you know, sound intellectual, you know, I might say like, it is not lost on me that, you know, da, 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 right? Not is a negative lost on me. That's another negative. That's a double negative. Just like when you multiply two negative numbers, you get a positive product, mm. right? So it's not lost on me. That means I understand that, right? That's a positive thing. That means I get it. I see, right? And it's a lot. It's, I can't think of a lot of examples right now, right now for some reason, but there's a lot of examples in the English language where we deal with double negatives and it's part of standard English. It's not even like bad, not even considered bad English, but these are math, these are algebraic concepts. So we're using them all the time, but if nobody told you that, then you might not think that you're using math. So you might go, you might go along and be thinking like, yeah, I'm not really good at math. Math ain't really my thing. Not knowing you're actually good at math. You know, you'd be using math all the time. And then that's another thing too, to, to think about, like, you know, it's like Malcolm X said, you know, when he said, look at you, who taught you to hate yourself, right? I'd be thinking to myself, like, look at you. Who, who told you you was bad at math? Because I really, like, we really got to ask ourselves that. Because a lot of people just, they be quick to tell you, like, yo, no, nah, I was never good at math. Whoa, hold up. Who told you you weren't good at math? How did you arrive at that conclusion? What was it that happened? What, what metrics are you using to measure yourself to arrive at that conclusion? I got a theory that a lot of people went to school and they had teachers that didn't give partial credit on tests or quizzes, which I understand. Um, I, can see, I see the value in both, giving partial credit, not giving partial credit. But the people that didn't get partial credit, they sit in the math class, they take a quiz or something, it might be five questions. And then it's like, all right, I got two completely correct. So that's 40 points. But the other three, I made small mistakes, little errors. But I understood it for the most part, though. But I made little errors. But my teacher don't give partial credit. So that means if it's wrong, it's wrong. I lost 60 points. I get a 40 on the quiz, and I'm thinking, damn, I'm really not that good at this subject. And if your teacher don't take the time to, like, sit down with you and be like, look, you know, on number one, you got number one wrong, but the only reason you got number one wrong is because you forgot the negative sign. Look, you got number two wrong. Only reason you got number two wrong is because instead of doing um, eight divided by two and getting four, you did you accidentally did eight minus two and you wrote six. You still got it wrong though. So it really, so that situation, right? It's like that forty percent on that quiz is not a fair and accurate representation of that that student's level of understanding of that concept and that material. But if you're a child and you don't know nobody, you're like, damn, I got a 40. I failed. I'm not good at math. You go to that conclusion. And I believe that a lot of people was in that boat and had those experiences. And then they never had the opportunity to have somebody like sit down with them like, look, you're really not that bad at this. You know, because there's a lot going on in the classroom. Teachers have a lot of responsibilities. So they might have not had the ability to like sit down and like, break it down for them. Yeah. But, so I, so again, like, I like I want to I want to I'm going to start challenging people more like when they tell you like. Nah, I really, I was never really good at math. Like, well, who told you that? How you know that? Because, like, when you start tutoring people, you sit down with them, like, especially adults, like, you sit that are, like, trying to go back to school and whatnot, you sit down with them, and then you, they, they, they're so, like, negative in terms of their representation of, like, their ability, and then you expecting, like, damn, this, this part, this might be rough. And then you start talking to them, 
And then they getting right answers. It's like, hold up, what's going on? Like, like you told me you wasn't good at this. <laughs> but I think, you know, I think sometimes it's like they're so used to that narrative, like playing over and over in their head that, you know, they just, they buy into it. Yeah. Really, they don't give themselves enough credit. I can see that it's easy to arrive at that conclusion too. Uh, just talking, to, listening to you break that down. And then a couple of nights ago, I was helping my daughter with a division problem. I mean, she did all the work and got the answer. Uh, it was incorrect off by one number, right? So I did it with the calculator real quick. Like, how did you get off by one number? And I go to look at it. It was kind of the scratch paper was disorganized and she didn't carry a one somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so, like you said, in the all or nothing classroom where it's right or wrong and somebody don't explain that, it could go downhill fast. So I, I definitely can attest to what you're talking about just based off of that concept from two days ago. Yeah. 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 That was so, a lot. yeah. so let me, let me say, say one more thing, too. Before, can I jump in? Yeah, go ahead. I'm going to say this for people that's listening. I'm going to just throw this out there. Here's another thing you got to look out for. If your child goes to like a special admission school or a magnet school or a so-called good school, you got to be very careful because bad teachers can hide in the so-called good schools. And this is why. A lot of times they can hide very safely because if if your child is not doing well in that school or in the class, people are very, because a lot of people want to protect the reputation of these spaces. Right. So you so nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, rather, I'd say. They're going to blame your child. Right. They're going to say, well, your child can't handle the rigor of this institution. Or your child is not intelligent, basically trying to tell you that your child is not intelligent enough to be here. That's why they're not doing well. What happens is a lot of times and that may be the case in some 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 situations, but a lot of times the teacher is not a good teacher. But because that institution is seen as, you know, it's got, it's very prestigious. It's got a lot of clout and, you know, somebody, you know, famous or whatever, somebody that was a, I don't know, a politician or these like doctors or lawyers or whoever that, you know, went to that school back in the day, people want to protect that, that reputation. So they'll throw your kids under the bus and they'll protect that bad teacher a lot of times. But a lot of times like the teacher is not a good teacher. Right. But they'll make it seem like, oh, well, you know, your child just can't handle they Maybe they can't handle the rigor. Maybe this isn't the best place. And I'm like, no, nah, hold up. This guy's not a good teacher. This lady's not a good teacher. Like they don't know how to teach. And a lot of times what happens is these people will be veterans. They might have been in the game for like 20, 25, 30 years. Like and they don't they don't adapt. They don't change nothing about it because it's like, oh, well, I teach at this elite school. I don't have to change anything about it, about my, my teaching style or my methodology. I don't have to do it. Right. If somebody don't like it, you know, like they they should be glad they're even in this school. Yeah. Be glad they're even in this school. That means they got to conform to me. I don't got to change for them. That's how that's how a lot of these guys are. I just want to I just want to put that out there while it was on my mind. Yeah. But before I forget, because that's that's a real issue that like doesn't I don't hear that ever being discussed. And a lot of parents, I think. Parents might feel some type of way because they might have a child in that situation where like their child is going to one of those types of schools and they may end up being a little too hard on their child because they buy into the propaganda too. That like, Oh, well, you know, the assumption, cause the assumption is that everybody that's at one of those schools is a great teacher. 
But this is why it's crazy. I, now I think now I'm thinking about it because I taught at one of these schools. I went to one of these high schools as a student in Baltimore, and I taught at one of these schools here in Philly. And it's like this. It's like I start asking questions about like you know people's careers and whatnot as I get to know them, that my colleagues and whatnot. While I was at this particular school, and nobody really started their career at this school. Everybody else kind of like was teaching at other neighborhood schools, the comprehensive schools, the, the quote unquote regular schools, right? Around Philly. And then they put in the application and they this particular school had an opening. So then they get to come over here. So I'm like, I'm thinking about it one day. I'm like, well, damn, like when you was at the neighborhood school, nobody would have thought that you was this great teacher that could walk on water. But the moment you at this school, now the assumption is that you a great teacher. All of a sudden, hmm. so it's like it's a, it's about it's about institutional affiliation. So when people have an institutional affiliation, it's like they unfairly get credit for a lot of things that they're not doing, and they they can hide. Yeah, I like you as a as a bad as a bad teacher or a mediocre teacher or just a lazy teacher that don't want to put in a lot of work. You get a lot of a lot of people hide out in them schools, hide behind the school accolades. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then as soon as, and if somebody come to them and say like, "Well, nah, you're not a good teacher. You're not being effective. Like your instructional methods are trash," the first thing they'll do is say, "No, your child can't handle the rigor. Your child's not smart enough for my class. No, you're not good at explaining the material and making sure that they learn and using different modalities and differentiating instruction and all that kind of stuff. You're not good at all that, and you because nobody's ever challenged you to have to do that because you're like, yo, I'm in this elite school, and 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 a lot of times, you know." Oftentimes, like when you have you have students that are more well prepared for academic rigor, then as a teacher, you don't got to do much. You know, you kind of just kind of just, you know, it's almost like has more of a feel like a college type course where you just kind of just come in, lecture, especially like in the um, in like the liberal, the liberal arts, like social studies and you know the English classes, you kind of just lecture and just have conversations. You know, you may not have to like break things down as much. Yeah. But yeah. Hey, quick, quick follow up um, to that. Stephanie in the comments said the state test took away the ability to get partial credit um, consistently. So um, to your point earlier about agreeing with the partial credit piece and, you know, having to have the full problem correct before getting credit for it. How does that play into the opposite side of that? And I know we're not going to get down a political rat hole here, but how does that play into the schools where um, that are less fortunate in the poor communities? Because we tied, in, tied that in earlier, too saying that you have teachers teaching kids in the poor communities. Those kids grow up, have less paying jobs, and it's like a cycle. So how, how does that work? Because we want to, I want to stay focused on our community too, because I know we're talking about our kids and those institutions. So how does that play on this side of it? So I think if I understand your question correctly, um, I mean, it, it definitely ser serves to maintain the status quo. Yeah. You know, um, like she mentioned state testing. Mm -hmm. I mean, state testing is, is big money and like teaching to the test. And, and a lot of a lot of the issue I see with like the state testing is that. The students aren't prepared for the state test because there's so much. Like in one problem, in one typical math problem on a state test, there's so many skills. It's complex in, in that one question. And you got to you got to not only know those skills, but then you got to be used to that type of like rigor. Is that is that word again? You got to be used to seeing those types of questions, and being being used to being able to sit down and 
pull pull from your memory how to do all those different things. And here's another thing. A lot of those test questions are word problems. So you really got to not only got to know how to do a couple things, you got to know math language. You got to be able to understand and appreciate mathematics as a language in itself. So you have to know all the math vocabulary. You got to understand the different syntax used in, in math problems. And you just got to be a good reader. That's another problem. That's another issue as well. Like a lot of reading issues, like I talked about hiding with the you know bad teachers hiding. A lot of reading issues can hide because a lot of times those reading issues manifest themselves in a math classroom. Because when it comes time to do math word problems, the student might have an issue because they don't they don't know how to read that well. They don't have reading comprehension skills that are that, that great. But it's like the challenge you see the problem in a math classroom. So you're like, oh, we're in math class. And, you know, I'm not doing well. Or well, the teacher's like, well, yeah, this is my math. You're in my math class and you're not doing well. So therefore it must be a math issue. A lot of times it's a reading issue. You know, because I've asked I've asked students and a lot of a lot of teachers, a lot of math teachers have had students that if you give them an equation to solve, just the equation. They could solve it. They might know how to do that. But if you give them a word problem that requires them to read the word problem from start to finish, understand it, decode it, take the take the relevant information out, take the numbers out and then create their own equation and then solve it. They won't be able to do it. They'll be stuck. So that's another issue as well, like a lot of reading comprehension issues that need to be addressed as well. But, you know, I think part of that comes from the fact that school formal education is so compartmentalized, like reading is so separate from math. Like when people say I'm a reading person, I'm not a math person or I'm a math person. I'm not a reading person. I'll be like, what do you mean? How can you, be, you can't be a math person without being a reading person. Like I used to get frustrated with students sometimes. I'll be like, bro, read first, then do math. I always think about that senior from Belly. When uh when DMX told him like put the weed in the bags first, then get money. <laughs> like slow down, like one step at a time. Come on, you gotta crawl before you walk. Like, so to do math problems, you gotta be able to read first. And a lot of people can't do the reading. So because you can't do the reading, then you can't you can't do the math. But then a lot in a lot of times, like, you know, people kind of look at the surface level and say, Oh, well, this was a math test, you failed it. You must not be good at math. Simple. Case closed. <laughs> It's like, like they're better. How did you at arrive at that conclusion? What you say earlier? How did you arrive at this conclusion that you're not good at math? Yeah, who told you that? Yeah, who told you that? Yeah, told you that? Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a loaded question when you covered it. That's kind of what I was trying to get around to, without asking multiple questions. But yeah, I wanted I wanted to uh, punch in uh, on something you mentioned earlier, which is uh, your groundbreaking concept of histematics. Mm -hmm. uh, just kind of take us back to the beginning and just kind of share how the idea first uh, took shape. Yeah. So, I mean, it was something I kind of organically was just doing, just, you know, being a black man in the classroom, like in Philly. Um, I started doing a lot of reading when I started teaching because early in my career, like probably my first, first year, as soon as I started teaching, my first year of teaching, I realized like, you know, a lot of my students would gravitate toward me. And they kind of identified me as a role model. And then I was, then I realized something else. I realized that they had a lot of questions for me, like questions about life and they wanted guidance. So then I was like, well, damn, if they got questions, I need to have some good answers. 
so so then I said, well, you know what? I need to start reading. Because I think a lot of the answers and a lot of the things that, you know, they have concerns about have to do with like social issues and um, social social realities and, you know, issues with all like, you know, you know, political issues and social economic realities and whatnot. So I had to start, you know, doing a lot of reading. Um, and from there, I also recognized that just as my students had a lot of math deficiencies, they also had a lot of like deficiencies in terms of like, you know, history. And a lot of them were ahistorical and they just had never been taught a lot of things. Like even like, you know, noteworthy people from Philadelphia, you know, they hadn't been taught about or they didn't know about. Or it might be a street named after somebody, but they don't even know who the person was. Um, so I would try to like have conversations with them or, you know, incorporate those people into the math lessons. So it's like a, you know, killing, you know, two birds with one stone type situation. And it was kind of like an organic thing, something I was just doing. And then around 2019, there's a good brother that used to teach at University of Missouri um, named LeGarrette King. Now he's up at uh, SUNY Buffalo in upstate New York. And he runs a center. And that's this, uh, it's, it's like a history center. And every year that center has a conference called the Teaching Black History Conference. So I decided, I said, you know what? I need to um, like come up with a name for what I've been doing and kind of formalize it, put it together into like a presentation and really like start talking about it. It's just like something I just like thought of. I said, well, because it kind of fit with the theme of the conference. So as I was thinking, I was like, why don't I do this? So why don't I like really put this together? So that's kind of how Histomatics was birthed. It's just a the you know me, my desire to kind of formalize something that I had kind of been doing just kind of randomly, you know. Yeah. Um, and I decided, it, but it, it helped me to become more intentional with it, because then I said, well, how can I break it down into like a framework? So I got like five elements to it: um, numerical triggers, first element, quick example of that. Let's say, um, let me think, let me think, uh, 1963. Um, an important year for a lot of reasons. If I make a Mississippi connection, I might say like, okay, that was the year that um, Mega Evers was assassinated, 1963. So if I want to talk talk about that to my students, it might be like second graders or third graders. I might I would create a math problem where I know that the sum might we might be doing addition, we're adding numbers together. But I create a problem intentionally where the sum of the the sum of the two numbers is going to be 1,963. So when we get that answer. Then we go, we segue right into the conversation about Mega Evers. Or, or we might talk about the year he was born. You know, if I don't want to be as like as morbid, you know, even though it's important to understand, you know, you know, assassinations did happen. And, you know, he got assassinated because he was doing real work, doing serious work in the community, you know. Um, but that's numerical triggers because the, the hope is that all their life, whenever they see that number, because I connected like a history lesson to a math lesson, they'll remember it. And also like, they'll be more likely to remember how to do the steps to get the answer in that type of problem because there's a, there's a story connected to it. Yeah. You know, there's something, there's something, uh, there's something more to, again, it's more than just numbers, more than just, you know, numbers and pluses and minus signs. That's, that's um, element one. The second element is um, what is it? So now I'm forgetting now getting the order, but uh, I think it's like um, word problems. Of the Af African American experience or the African experience, just like you know, just coming up with just different word problems, you know, um, 
that use math, they're math word problems, but they incorporate like our historical experience, like whether it's like slave rebellions. And, and, it, and again, it's like, it's told from, from our perspective, you know, it's not just the whole, like, you know, the whole, like na- the typical narrative, these, these white people had to come save us and, and, and do this and that. And it's like, nah, like, cause, cause my thing is like, I think we should have like history classes where we only talk about slave rebellions. Like that's the main focus. Cause, cause you got, cause you got people walking around here, like really confidently believing that like they are not their ancestors. And I get it because they don't know the, the true history. Like it'll blow your mind. If like you hear about like, you know, Baba uh, Akineli Moja's book, we will shoot back or uh, Charles Cobb's book that nonviolent stuff will get you killed. Talking about what, what the, what the elder told um, Dr. King and them when they came down or the SNCC, the SNCC um, members when they came down. You know, like, yeah, y'all do that nonviolent stuff if y'all want to, you know what I'm saying? But they had the guns and they was really protecting them and enabled them to be nonviolent because somebody had some guns. But we we didn't learn that in school. So it almost makes sense. It's like you always see the videos and everything, like the water hoses and the dogs attacking the people and whatnot. But it's very intentional to, like, leave out, you know what I'm saying? Like the people that did have the guns, like people like, you know, the Deacons for Defense in, in, in Louisiana and, like, people like that, right? So it's like... You know, it's a way. So we, you know, I'm using mathematics to really like tell the history from a different perspective. And you know, so the word problems will will include a lot of that, or they can include a lot of that. You know, because um, it's math and everything. You know, um, so we can create word problems. Then there's also like um, statistics of the African experience. That's another element where we just talk about statistics. You know, different percentages. Um, different amounts of, you know, quantities of, you know, from our experience, no matter what it may be, uh, whether it's dealing with like chattel slavery or dealing with commerce, economics, you know, politics, anything we're involved in, but anything that can be analyzed in a, stati- in a statistical nature. Um, and then like experiential elements, that's element four, Ex- experiential uh, pieces. Like what I mean by that is like, um, again, like kind of how I alluded to earlier, like that example of like with Malcolm X and the, and the circle, the circle of cycle of poverty. Like that's a like a, so, a social economic concept that he was talking about, but what I'm doing is I'm connecting it to like an algebra or a, ge, a geometric concept, or or another one is is good, which is um this is a good example um radical equations. So in algebra you got like radical equations, like you might have like the square root of um three x plus five equals thirty eight or something, and you got to solve for x. So essentially, it's like it's it's really two two main steps in a problem like that. The first step is to isolate the radical. So whatever's under the radical sign, you got to isolate it by itself on one side of the equal sign. That's the first step. The second step is to eliminate the radical, eliminate the radical sign, right? So you square both sides, or you might raise both sides to the second power, or both sides of the equation. I mean, so I'm learning I'm, as I'm thinking about this. I'm like, wait a minute. This reminds me of COINTELPRO. This reminds me of what the government has done to our radicals. Right. First step, isolate the radical. So you identify this person that's trying to get his people to rise up. Right. You got to isolate him or her from the masses. You got to isolate them. Second thing, you got to eliminate them. How you eliminate them? Might might kill them or put them in jail for the rest of their life. 80 years or something like that. Right. Or just come up with a some type of story. Um, some fabricated story to make them seem like some type of pervert or deviant or something, whereas the community wouldn't want to support them no more. That's a way to eliminate them. And I'm like, damn, like, this is the same exact process in algebra. 
isolate the radical, eliminate the radical. Those are the two main steps. And it's a lot of stuff like that. Like, so when you like, you really get into the, um, to the calculus, even your know, algebra, whatever calculus, even like calculus as an example where integration, right? Integration is like half of calculus. Finding the derivative is one half. Integration is, is the other half. But there's limits of integration. So again, so this gets into the power issue, right? Because people like, you know, want to be, you know, think integration is going to help us win, but integ you're integrated into a system that somebody else controls. So if that's your goal, then it's like, I don't know. It's like, it seems a little, it, se it seems very challenging because you don't control that system. And in the calculus, sometimes when you're, you're, you're doing, um, you're evaluating what they call definite integrals, there are limits, there are limits of integration. So just like in, in real, in real life, like there are limits of integration, like somebody like Europeans control the system and then they control and dictate how you can integrate into it what you can do once you integrate into it what you can do where you can go how you can do it so it's not as if it's like oh i'm in here and now i have just as much freedom as a white man or a white woman no they're still going to tell you okay no you can come in here but it's, it's kind of like when you you know you you know it's somebody like i don't know somebody down in their luck but you don't really you don't really fuck with them like that but it's like you know what i don't want you out here on the street but you know yeah you can spend a night here but yeah, just don't touch nothing. <laughs> yeah, I'm just yeah. like, I'll let you in. But, you know, only because out of, out of like, because we used to be cool. What you Maybe you used to be cool, but what you did was real foul. We're not cool no more, but I'm not going to let you, like, be outside. Of it. Maybe it's a snowstorm or something. I don't want you to die from hypothermia or something. You can, you can stay in here. I'm going to let you spend a night, one night, but don't touch nothing because we're not cool like that. Right? So there's, like, limits of integration where, like, you know, and, and so the math will show you. Like the math will show it. So I'm like, I'm really convinced. Like there's so many math concepts that like mirror or overlap the political science and the political reality and the realities that we're in. And if we understand the math, then we'll be able to see it because they, they're doing it in plain view. They're doing it right in our face. But I think it's because we've been denied access to the mathematics that we're not able to see it. Right. And also they convince us and program us into believing that the math is too hard. So we want to stay away from it and want to try to avoid it at all costs. Right. So that's the fourth element. The fifth element is um, math, um, black mathematical exemplars. So that might be and that kind of is like two two groups in there. Um, actual mathematicians and like math teachers and, and educators. And there are a lot of them that, you know, I never even knew about when I was growing up. You know, people that, you know, had PhDs in mathematics, black people that taught it like a lot of HBCUs and whatnot. Um, People that you know got PhD got PhDs in the early 1900s or, or whatnot, um, and also people that studied mathematics that you might not know about, or you know people that use mathematics a lot, like W. E. B. Du Bois, like used a lot of statistics and a lot of his writing and a lot of his research. Um, who else? Like uh, Sundiata Coley. So Sundiata Coley studied mathematics and got a degree in mathematics from Prairie View A&M down in Texas. He ended up, he was a mathematician. He ended up being in the Black Liberation Army. He was, he was with Asada Shakur on the, on the New Jersey Turnpike in 1973 when the New Jersey uh, State Troopers tried to assassinate all three of them. Um, him, Asada Shakur, and Zaid Malik Shakur. They, they did, they did kill Zaid Malik Shakur. They tried to assassinate Asada. They shot her too. Um, 
And Sudi Adekoli, I think, was a political prisoner for like 40, 40 something years. I think he just got out earlier this year, you know? So, but this brother was a mathematician. So I'm reading about him. And then I come to find out randomly one day, like, oh, and he, he studied math. He had a bachelor's degree in math. So, you know, I'm hype. So I'm like, you know what I'm saying? So it's a way, definitely a way to connect. Like, yeah. okay, what was it? You know, he he, he was revolution. And, and again, I think what, what happens is you'll find, like, as we, we study the history, a lot of our people that were moving in a, in a revolutionary direction, not all of them, but some of them definitely had, like, you know, strong, strong math backgrounds. And again, I, I'm I'm convinced that it's because they have that love, that type of understanding where they're like, okay, this makes sense. Like, this is the only way we're going to get free. You know, like somebody like Emil Carl Cabral over on the continent, Cabral is in Guinea-Bissau, Cape Verde. He was one of the um, the, the Africans that was sent to Portugal because Guinea-Bissau was a Portuguese colony. So he was sent to Portugal to study. He ended up getting a degree in engineering with a focus on agriculture. So he was an agricultural engineer. So while he's doing that, he realizes the value of land. And that's why, like, you know, like I mentioned, Republic of New Africa, they always say free the land. Because really, like, revolution is really about land. You know, a lot of times, like, people that try to, like, you know, government entities and corporations that try to distract us with, like, money and, um, you know, different, like, material things. But not understand, but the land is really the source of everything because everything comes from the land anyway. You can get your, your food from land, get your clothes from land, you know, get your cotton or whatever materials you need to make clothes. Your shelter, got trees, chop the trees down, build houses, all these types of things. Everything comes from the land. You might have like oil underground, whatever, you know? So everything comes from the land. So that's what they understood. Like, and a lot of people, like, you know, they really, when they had that, they had that math background, they kind of like see the world differently. And they like, they're able to see what makes sense. And they were to realize, like, you know, they kind of can, they kind of can understand, like, when somebody stands up and starts talking. And it's, you know, when somebody's talking and they on some bullshit, it's like, like, it's getting at that equation. That equation don't add up. It's like, you saying this. It ain't adding up. So, which is it? Like, no, nah, like, you just you can't. Yeah, you can't, you can't piss on me and tell me it's raining. <laughs> yeah. So, so with that, um, what you do is very interesting. So you tie math and history together. And you made a, a very good point earlier. And, um. Actually, that was my next question. With the public schools uh, specifically taking our history out of the schools, I know they're doing it here in the South. I'm not sure if it's up north yet or across the country, but um, history doesn't change. And then you talk about the methods of math. Now there's new methods of math that are being taught to the public um, and to the youth. Is it a simpler way? Like, are they doing it because it's simple or are they trying to keep us from being able to break the problems down, in your opinion? So that's a good question. Um... I think that it's beneficial, but I think that because I think what it one of the things with the with the new methods of math, what they do is it it it, it teaches our children to think more algebraically at an earlier age. Because what they're doing is they're taking a lot of like like it's like algebra like algebraic concepts and applying them just to arithmetic. So I think what could be a possible a positive outcome of that is when the children kind of graduate from arithmetic to pre-algebra. They don't get overwhelmed when they see X's and Y's and Z's because I've had a lot of students and encounter a lot of people that's like, yeah, you know, math was cool. I used to like math. But then when they put letters in it, I ain't like it no more. <laughs> right. <laughs> so if this is done correctly and done appropriately, that should never happen. It should be a smooth transition. 
right? But but a lot of it is teachers have to be trained and they have to be trained properly. And they have to have time to really study these curriculum. Like sometimes like I'll be reading these curriculum, right? And I'm like, yo, this is a lot, man. And and I actually like like reading. And but so I'll be thinking about a lot of people that I'm like, okay, there are a lot of people that go to college and graduate college, and then one of the benefits they feel in their mind, even if they don't admit it, is that see, I got a college degree now. I never have to read a book again for the rest of my life. That's the mentality of a lot of people. So I'm like, these a lot of these people are teachers. So this, but this curriculum needs to be studied. Like you got to study this like a like a textbook and like really be sitting there like taking notes and like really think because they give you everything. They give you like all the examples. They give you the background. They give you the rationale behind this method and that method. But you really got to study it. And you know, a lot of people, you know, time is limited. But at the same time, a lot of people don't like reading. So if you don't like reading, I don't know. And that's only one part of it. Because once you read and really start to understand it, then you got to implement it. So you got to practice. You know, you really got to practice like applying those methods. And if you don't practice applying those methods, it's, it's going to get real bad real fast. And then and then on top of that, that's just, I'm not even talking about like, you know, classroom classroom management challenges, you know? Because I'm like, I'm a, I'm a teacher. Like, I don't I do not do well when I got to compete with students that's talking and, and running their mouth. You can't shut the hell up. <laughs> I ain't gonna hold. I ain't gonna hold you. Like I'm not. I'm not good at that. <laughs> I'm not good at that. I'm like you gotta go. Like I got. So I'm. I'd rather. I need. To, you need to go. I gotta kick you out or something. But then if you're in a school that doesn't have the um, the resources and the personnel for like you know disruptive students, then it, the student got to stay in your room. So I can't. I can't be. I can't be the best teacher I could be if I gotta compete with your with your whole conversation, you know about you know what you about to do at the school and all this and that and then. You know, it's a different animal when you're dealing with high school because high school, you're dealing with like adultified children that are really are like close to being adults, like 16, 17 years old. So I'm like, I'm sitting there trying to teach my class like, and I might be like, bro, I'm trying to do my job, bro. I need you, I need you to like shut the hell up. <laughs> like, <laughs> or even if I say be quiet in what I feel is a respectful way, they're going to take it. They're going to interpret it like I'm trying to tell them to shut the hell up. So then it's like he felt, then I heard his man, I heard his ego. But he's going to start talking shit to me and everything. And I'm like, whoa, hold up, man. Like, we're not about to do this. <laughs> so so then, but like I've been teaching for a long time. So I, I know, okay, these are, this is going to happen, right? So then you got to make that decision. Like, all right, you got to choose your battles, you know? But a lot of people in that in that environment that might be more, more motivated to learn at that time, they won't be able to learn because it's so, it's so much going on in the classroom. And then you got a lot of students that are just, in classrooms, I call I call them in school dropouts mm. because they're not really going to school to learn. They're going to school to avoid truancy charges, mm-hmm. you know, um, because they've been conditioned and programmed that school has no value for them. It's a it's a programming thing that starts at a very early age. And, you know, they, they're doing what they've been conditioned to do. So in a way, it's not their fault. Right. Um, And a lot of them don't know how to just kind of just sit in the back and be quiet. They want to talk and run their mouth and, you know, do this, that, and the third. And they want to get attention. They don't know how to chill. Mm -hmm. So it's just it's a lot of challenges. And, you know, in the in the urban um, um, public schools, the charter schools, and especially with a subject like math, it's like. 
I don't know, like most, if especially if it's if it's if a new topic is being introduced, class that classroom needs to be quiet. You know, that yeah. classroom needs to be quiet, you know, so people can really really focus because there's so many details and like you got to be able to hear, you know, what's going on. Um, but yeah, but that's that's another reason why I developed the YouTube channel because with the YouTube channel, for that student that's in that type of classroom that's not really conducive for learning. You know, maybe when you get home, you know, if your house is quiet or your bedroom is quiet, you can just, you know, take out your phone and just go to the All This Math YouTube channel and just find the video that you need in one of the playlists and then just, you know, let the video play. Because it's a, it's a lot. It's a it's a recorded lesson. Well, that's what the videos are. It's like a recorded actual lesson. So it's different from a lot of a lot of other YouTube channels where you might see a screen with a problem on it. And somebody might be, you might see like, you know, writing on the screen, you might hear a voice. Whereas me, I'm more like human, like I'm a human and I'm here, right? Where, and also I'm, I'm being intentional with doing that because like, I want you to see my hoodie, you know, because I think, I think the hoodie is kind of fly for one, um, for two, I'm teaching, a, it's a, the hoodie itself is like an introduction to a history lesson. Because I want you to know who Harriet Tubman was, who Asada Shakur was, who Asada Shakur is and was, who uh, um, Fannie Lou Hamer was, and who Ida B. Wells was. I got Ida B. at the bottom. So I want you to know who they, who they were. You know, so when you're watching the video, you're going to see the names. You're going to see, like, because this is propaganda. It's, it's positive propaganda. So just like I wear to school, I wear to, wear to class. So I might, you know, wear to Cheney, you know, when, I, when I'm on campus teaching my classes. Um, it's propaganda, so you're gonna get that, and you're gonna get some math too. So you know, because these are the things that our that our children need, that our that our young people need. You know, they need they need historical awareness, they need mathematical competency. So you know, because math is is really. Let me say this too. Um, math is really about problem solving. You know, really, math and problem solving should be synonymous, but. Another thing that, you know, I'm trying to start saying more like in the beginning of these talks, but I forgot to say it, is that we also got to come to grips with the reality that like we're not supposed to learn math. Like the powers that be do not want us to learn math, but the challenge and I learned this from, you know, studying. This is something that Amos Wilson said years ago. He said that the challenge for the power structure in America is to give the impression that they actually want to improve educational outcomes for black people while at the same time maintaining the status quo. Hmm. So it's all a game because like if, if educational outcomes really did improve for black people, that would really, that would compromise the structure of the society because you never meant to really be able to experience like all the fruits of this nation. Like we were brought here for a reason. And it wasn't for us to like be able to do a lot of the things that some of us have still been able to do, um, at least on a, on a grand scale. We weren't all supposed to be able to do that. But my 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 main my large idea about math and why we're not meant to, why it becomes evident to me that we're not meant to learn math is because if, if we that math is synonymous with problems, right? But we also understand that my problem is a benefit for somebody else mm. it's like all of us on here a lot any i guarantee you any problem that any of us have us four black men on here have somebody is benefiting from those problems 
there's not a problem that we have that somebody's not benefiting from, right? Yeah. So if we go back to the premise that math is synonymous with problem solving, now what's happening is, oh, now we're teaching black people how to solve problems. We can't do that because if we solve problems, now the people that benefited, we're benefiting from our problems. Now they have a problem because they just lost that benefit. So this is this is why I believe that, you know, well, this confirms for me, like we're not meant to learn math. Yeah. The thing is, it's not really that hard to teach people math. All you have to do is create the, the environments that are conducive for it. And, you know, resources have to be dedicated to it. But it's clear that those that are in power don't want to do that. It's not hard to do. It's not, hard, it's not really hard to do at all. You just got to have the will to do it. The resources are there. And, and a lot of, and here's another thing. A lot of money is spent in education. Education is a multi-billion dollar, you know, um, institution in this country right but we got to look at where the money goes like this person got a textbook contract this person got a uh a contract for toilet paper this person got a contract for this this person got a contract for that all that all of that right but what it needs to happen is you got to have you got to have teachers that know how to teach that want to teach and you got to have like the right student teacher ratios you got to have all those things and you got to and you also got to involve the parents you got you to gotta partner with parents. A lot of schools and school districts don't really partner with parents, you know, because um, what you really want is you want for you want for the parents to be able to supplement. I mean, from a school's perspective, you would want that you would ideally want the parents to supplement what you're teaching in the school. I think, though, as a because, you know, I'm a, I'm a teacher, but I'm I'm a parent first. Right. I think the school should actually supplement what we're doing and what we want, especially if it's a school that we don't control. You know, so, but again, so that's another reason, like for the YouTube channel, for the book, because I want like, I want our parents to be able to take more control over education. Like for a long time, we've been conditioned and taught that to kind of just like mind your business, you know, send your children to school and we're going to teach them, you know? And that's why it's ironic to me when like some people get on TikTok and get on Instagram and complain about black parents and, you know, not doing this and not doing that. They don't understand the politics behind all this. Like we've been conditioned for years to kind of just send our children to school and then just pick them up at the end of the day and mind our business. Now that's wrong. Like hopefully you have the wherewithal to see through that and not just do that. But in all reality, if that's what people are conditioned to do, and you got to get them a little bit of you got to have a little bit of sympathy for them, because when you really understand, when you really zoom out and look at the system for what it is, you realize that like that's what people have been programmed to do because it benefits the society. Because it's like it's like, OK, this is the school is the state apparatus. Right. So the school is meant to maintain the society as it is, maintain the status quo. So we don't want parents interfering with what we're doing. Like we give us your children. We're going to socialize your children. So that way. They can become what we need them to be so that, you know, they won't become revolutionary and they won't ever rise up and try to really change anything on a structural foundational level. Right. So that's what we want. But I think what should happen is we really need to. Um, and this is again, this is why I'm creating resources, because I want for our people, our parents 
to be able to take ownership of education and specifically with math, um, other subjects too. But, and if our children do go to school, then school should only be a place for practice, you know, yeah. kind of like sports. Like people learn how to play sports in their neighborhood. They learn in their community. They don't really go to school.